0: black canary. I'll need a sparring partner.
1: I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question?
0: Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for-
1: Welcome back to Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and throughout this podcast, mostly on the odd-numbered episodes, I have been chronicling Zatanna's appearances in DC Comics. The subject for this episode is her appearance in World's Finest, issue 208. The thing is, just like the last Zatanna story I covered, she only appears in two panels of this story, although she does get some dialogue, which, you know, that's a plus. Really, this story is another team-up adventure, only this time it's not Superman and Batman fighting side-by-side, but rather Superman and Dr. Fate. Gee, who do I know that really likes Superman and Dr. Fate? Well, you know who it is. Please welcome my special guest, Kyle Benning. How are you, Kyle?
2: Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me aboard.
1: Thank you for coming aboard. Uh, We will talk about Superman and Dr. Fate in a minute. I mean, trust me, we've got the entire episode to talk about them. But first... Technically, this is a podcast about Zatanna and Black Canary, so what do you think of these two? How and when did you discover them? I really
2: like both characters. I think uh, that's one of DC's strong points and times uh, has been a weakness as they forget to remember this or acknowledge this, but DC just now being around for 80 years or whatever just has a very rich staple of characters, a lot of diverse characters, and sometimes they kind of forget about some of those, but uh, Black Canary and Zatanna are two great, strong female leads, and um, when done right, can make us for some really great, enjoyable stories. And so, my first experience or introduction to Black Canary probably would have been in Who's Who, but as far as story wise, would have been the uh, Dollar Comics era of World's Finest. Mm-hmm. Uh, those team ups that you've been covering, those are awesome. That uh, Dollar Comics era, World's Finest, are probably my absolute favorite run of comics ever. So, I inherited a good portion of those uh, from my dad's youngest brothers growing up. So, those were some of the first things I. Read, and that's really, I think, where my love of giant sized comics and anthology titles comes from is those uh, Dollar Comics era, world's finest. And the Black Canary stories were awesome, especially uh, some, <laughs> you, you covered, though, some of the ones you recently covered, some of the scantily clad or uh, <laughs> nude scenes there, which is coming out werewolf that, in, uh,
1: in the shower, yep, yep.
2: Yeah, that made uh, quite the impression on my uh, young mind.
1: But are those uh, are those comics? Sorry to go, go off in another tangent, but I know this is a character. Are the is that era also where you met Captain Marvel, or did you know him from other places?
2: Yeah, that probably would have been my first introduction to Captain Marvel, and I know it was also definitely my first uh, introduction to the other Fawcett character, Bullet Man and Bullet Girl. Mm-hmm. And those are two of my favorite, outside of Captain Marvel and the Marvel Family, Bullet Man and Bullet Girl are definitely my two other favorite uh, Fawcett characters, and some of my favorite Golden Age characters. Vigilante is another character I, I really love. Part of that's the Action Comics connection there. That you know was a feature in that comic that obviously spawned Superman, and so I always love those uh, character connections. Like we talked about uh, Gorilla in the past, yep. just because he had to, a run in Action Comics, that just kind of lump him in as a, kind of a Superman character. And uh, Vigilante, I think his best moment ever was probably the uh, blue and gray intro song to Brave and the Bold, but uh, (laughs) outside of that, it's those world's finest issues. I just absolutely love those.
1: Those are good. Gray Morrow Morrow doing the art on those stories was really good. What about Zatanna? Do you remember when or how you first discovered her?
2: Again, probably uh, Who's Who and then... I'm sure she surely had to have made appearances in, like, you know, the DC animated universe and stuff. But the first comic I remember with her that really stuck out would have had to have been an issue of Detective Comics during the Paul Dini run, like, around 2007. Mm -hmm. Detective Comics number 831 by Paul Dini. So in that era, there were a lot of uh, one-and-done stories. Mm -hmm. They're typically in black and white, Sepia Tones. I think Don Kramer was the artist on that, and they all had the uh, Simone Bianchi covers. I probably didn't pronounce that name right, but... uh, that was definitely the the first time the character really stuck out and made an impression with me in the story format when she teamed up with Batman there. I absolutely love that story and just that era of detective. It was really, when I was full-fledged, starting to get back into comics and especially diving back into DC again because once uh, Diamond Comics took over the distribution, uh, we didn't have a comic book shop in my town. The closest one was 35 miles away or so. Yeah. And so new comics for me were typically things I found at garage sales and stuff. And once I got my driver's license, we actually then around that same time, a comic book shop opened in Weirdly started picking up quite a bit of comics. I first got into buying new comics because of the Dreamwave Transformers series. I feel like I'm obligated every time I come <laughs> onto a fire and water show to mention Transformers because Rob Kelly absolutely hates them. you see. So they're just big boxes punching each other in the latest uh, digest. He,
1: he's, <laughs> pushing like, okay. the, he's pushing the advance 15 seconds button on his, uh, yes. on his phone right yeah. now.
2: But uh, so Transformers was back with a new uh, Dreamwave series. That's really what got me back into buying new comics. And then from there, I just branched out. And there are uh, series that came out around this time that I enjoyed uh, Identity Crisis, which again, Rob, 15 seconds, 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, that, that led into Infinite Crisis. And there was a lot of excitement and buzz coming around DC at that time. And yet, a lot of new things they were trying. And uh, a lot of great new series like Green Lantern and stuff. I was diving into the Green Lantern and the post-crisis era of, our post-infinite crisis era of Superman and started to branch out into Batman and Detective as well. And so I really have a fondness for that era of DC and especially that era of Detective and Batman.
1: All right, on to the actual stars of the story that we're going to be covering. How <laughs> and when did you become a Superman fan?
2: So, uh, likewise, you know, I had the Dollar Comics era. Of world's finest. So there's a lot of great Superman and Batman team ups mm-hmm. that usually had gorgeous Neil Adams covers like this one or Jim Aparo covers. And uh, pretty fun there. Uh, a lot of fun, exciting, zany, hany stories. So you got to love those as a kid. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, watching Super Friends and stuff. But really, probably the first uh, solo Superman comics I ever read were the Radio Shack free giveaways from the early 80s. I inherited those at the uh, Radio Shack Whiz Kids. And I believe there was two of those, and then a third one that had Wonder Woman in it as well. And those were some of my favorite comics uh, growing up. I just read those over and over again and leaf through Superman's various entries in uh, Who's Who. And then a, a big thing that really kind of helped cement in is my parents were always big fans of the Christopher e. Superman movies, so we watched those quite a bit growing up. But then when Lois and Clark came on TV, that was our, our thing every Sunday night. We'd watch Lois and Clark have a big bowl of popcorn, and uh, that was kind of our our family thing. So that just kind of cemented Superman as my favorite character you know, kind of growing up that way.
1: What about Dr. Fate?
2: Dr. Fate. Uh, I meant to go back and, and listen to the, uh, uh first issue, uh, special episode I did with, uh, Shag where we covered the Dr. Fate and we're actually the first ones to cover a first issue special on the fire and water network. So Rob's kind of stolen our thing since then. <laughs> but, uh, in that, uh, we covered the great, uh, Walt Simonson, Marty Pascal issue of, uh, First issue special. Yeah, excuse me. First issue special. That's a mouthful. That's what she said. Um, (laughs) I think that was probably my first introduction to the character. Again, his Who's Who entry and probably a few random All Star Squadron issues that I had. Might have had, I think, like 27, 28 around that. Those issue numbers had uh, Dr. Fate. There was a great cover of Dr. Fate fighting the Spectre on one of them. I think I had that one as a kid. But really, kind of the the first full on story I remember diving into was that. that first issue special uh, issue. And I I can't remember if I inherited that or picked that up at a garage sale at a a pretty young age, but that was definitely where I I fell in love with the the character. That that issue really sent it in for me, which how could you not? You kind of have the ancient Egyptian aspect, which is another thing that I always found interesting. We love the Anna Jones movies. You get the archeology span thing there and then, you know, the unique architecture. And then the mummy movies were big when I was, I don't know, 11, 12 or something like that when the first one came out. And then, Easter Sunday, or maybe it was Palm Sunday, whatever Sun probably Palm Sunday, because I usually corresponded with uh, Passover, but they'd always play Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. um, like NBC, and that was like one of the few times every year I'd get to stay up late, and we'd always watch the entire Ten Commandments, so you have the Egyptian uh, connection there, so that stuff always interests me as a kid, so then you had this, this awesome superhero kind of tapping into that Egyptian feel, and, you know, throwing unks around, and fighting Anubis, and that was awesome. So, yeah. uh, great visual hook, great costume, obviously, mm-hmm. and so perfect for what I was into, a lot of uh, a lot of things that I found visually appealing and interesting all wrapped up into one character, so he really stuck out to me. And honestly, if he probably would have had a more prolific uh, publishing history or that I would have had access to growing up, he probably I mean, he's definitely probably in my top 10 favorite characters, but he probably would have been right up there with like Captain America, Superman, and uh, Captain Marvel to be my top 4 right now. He's probably
1: Top six? Mm, yeah. I think the first time I saw Dr. Fate was the superpowers action figure. Now, I didn't have it, but a cousin of mine did. And I just remember thinking he had a really cool look. Like, I, I loved the helmet, mostly. Um, but, like, also, like, the the color scheme and everything. And he has one of those looks, even though, you know, he dates back to the Golden Age and he was part of the Justice Society. You know, most of the Justice Society of American Heroes, their costumes feel of a certain era. They feel very kind of dated, but something about Dr. Fates, I think it sort of transcends that, and you could see him in the Silver Age looking like that, or in the Bronze Age, and he feel he feels like a character who could have jumped over between Earth 1 and Earth 2 pretty seamlessly, and that's why I think it's it's unfortunate that he didn't last with Justice League International in that era, because... He seems to kind of fit that, you know, new earth kind of aesthetic that they were going for. And I think he would have really, really lasted in that time. So.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think that's probably definitely why they shattered Little Shag's uh, mind (laughs) by. uh including him in the superpower stuff, even though he's from a different Earth. Right. You know, Shag's kind of recounted that story before, his little hand uh, notebook that he was making notes of what Earth everybody belonged into when he was <laughs> reading through Crisis, and then he gets to the superpowers miniseries, and his mind is thrown for a loop of why this Earth 2 guy is interacting with all these Earth 1 <laughs> characters, and there's no footnote.
1: That doesn't make sense. So. All right, well, Kyle and I are going to pause here for a short promo break, and then we will come back and tell you all about World's Finest 208 don't go away
0: the end of the world is approaching soon the planet will be engulfed in a nuclear Armageddon and the only people that can prevent this from happening are considered to be the greatest villains of all time the only thing standing in their way is the Justice League in 2005. Uh, Wait a second. Are are we sure about that date this time? Yeah, it's 2005. We're sure this time.
2: Let's just be perfectly clear. I hate all of you so much.
0: Okay, good. Got that. All right. In 2005, DC Comics began publishing a 12-issue bi-monthly comic called Justice Written by Jim Kruger with art by Alex Ross and Doug Braithwaite, this series was essentially a Super Friends for adults. And now another group of Super Friends has come together to discuss all 12 issues in a podcasting crossover called J.L. May 2017. The excitement begins on the April 30th episode of the Fire and Water podcast, and continues into Supermates the Idlehead of Diablo podcast, Views from the Long Box, the Pulp to Pixel podcast, the Lantern cast, the Shazam cast, Comic Reflections, the Silver and Gold podcast, The Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, and Justice's First Dawn. J.L. May 2017. Last year, they covered the beginning of the Justice League. This year, they discuss and review The League's Toughest Battle. The coverage begins on April 30th on the Fire and Water Podcast, located at fireandwaterpodcast.com.
1: World's Finest Comics 208 is cover dated December 1971. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, however, the issue hit newsstands around October 19th that year. The book cost $0.25, and for that you got 48 pages made up of three stories and ads. The lead feature, starring Superman and Dr. Fate, was supported by two backup stories, one starring the Golden Age Robot Man and one starring the Ghost Patrol. The issue was edited by Julie Schwartz, and the cover was drawn by Neil Adams, who depicts a straining Man of Steel in some kind of mechanical harness pulling the Earth from its orbit while Dr. Fate watches. Kyle, what do you think of this cover?
2: I absolutely love this one and I'm trying to remember where the first place would have been that I've seen this because to me, this is one of the most iconic Neil Adams Superman covers ever. Like yes. I put this right up there with Superman number 233, which I know Neil Adams actually isn't that big a fan of. He's <laughs> read multiple things about how he doesn't like it, how he thinks the perspective is wrong on the legs, makes him the wrong length. And so he tried to redo that sweeter with, I believe his Action Comics 485. Um, but uh, I just don't think that ever carried the kind of the iconic look of the the 233 i mean 233 mm-hmm. is definitely probably one of the most merchandised superman images ever mm-hmm. and then another one that's i've always loved and actually have it signed by both neil, i have 233 signed by neil adams and daniel Neal. and then i have 419 signed by Len Wein and neil adams action mm-hmm. comics 419 is the other kind of second most iconic neil adams uh, superman image i can think of it's kind of got like a photo stat of a city mm-hmm. uh, behind him and he's flying out towards uh, the reader and then this mm-hmm. one this one I always rank up there with it. Now, obviously, Neil Adams did a ton of other licensing art and stuff like the Power Records, so I'm not including that. But as far as Superman covers, for some reason, this one has always stuck out. And I, I don't know where the first place would have been that I saw it, because I probably didn't get the issue till within the last five or ten years. And actually, I bought a newer copy more recently, got a one in very fine condition now, just because I got well the cover so much. My other ones beat to crap. But I must have seen this image somewhere as a fairly young child for it to, to stick out in my head. And I have no idea where it came from. I was thinking that, and again, this wouldn't have been that old, but uh, I was thinking maybe it's in the DC Comics 75th anniversary poster book that has like a, a hundred covers in it. Mm. And so I pulled that out right before we recorded and looked through that. No, it's not in that either. So I don't know where I would have seen it, but I, I love this image of him straining in the shackles. And part of it too, I, I kind of always associate this cover with Mr. Miracle as well, because it <laughs> reminds me of a couple of Mr. Miracle covers for recent shackles. I think number one and six of his original series, he's kind of, Shackled up, and then in the '90s, there was uh, during that, you know, the Superman Triangle numbering days, there was a, a two-part story where Superman and uh, Mister Miracle were teaming up, and on one of those covers, they're shackled together, and so that's I, just kind of how my brain works, associating those three covers together.
1: I think I, I bet I know why that is. I think there's something. It's not quite, but it, the weird contraption and the the shackles, the weights, it's almost Kirby-esque technology, like a, a yeah, sort of Kirby is. harness. It doesn't look quite as crazy the way he would have designed it, but that's kind of the idea that I get from it. So I I can definitely see that Mr. Miracle type of thing. I I look at this and I was like, that almost seems like something Kirby would have drawn, but with like sort of Neil Adams taking a, a cue from Kirby's design. I like this cover a whole lot. I think the expression, the strain, the pain on Superman's face is great. I think Dr. Faye is Kind of gets lost in the background. He's he looks cool. He looks on model, but he doesn't really stand out as much. This is really all about the look on Superman. I, I just wish Doctor Fate was a little bit more prominent. But other than that, yeah. yeah, it's it's really really cool.
2: Yeah, I think a little cooler way to incorporate Doctor Fate and we actually see it uh, somewhat during the story mm-hmm. is there's. Times where we see kind of him hovering over planet Earth in uh, silhouette. So if he would have had like his giant head kind of hold- right next to the planet, holding it or something, instead of all the just space background, that could have made for a really striking image, especially done with Neil Adams at the the top of his game.
1: Right, right. Uh, something that was brought up to me during the listener feedback section when I was covering uh, World's Finest two oh seven was that this was kind of an unusual time for this comic because. I think most people think of World's Finest as the Superman and Batman team-up book. And certainly, at uh, the last time, I covered a Superman and Batman story. But that was unique. What was it about the publication history of this book at this particular time?
2: Yeah, so like uh, you and Michael Bradley uh, talked about in that episode where you covered number 207, really, World's Finest got its genesis spinning out of New York. World's Fair's mm-hmm. 1940 issue, that had the first ever Superman and Batman on the cover together. So kind of spinning out of that. Then in 1941, they had World's Best Comics. And then with issue two of that, it became World's Finest Comics, which now I have a hard time hearing World's Finest without thinking of fundraiser chocolate, which is actually made in your old stomping grounds of Chicago. But uh, Anyway, <laughs> one of the people I cover for work, uh, their customer is World's Finest, makes us chocolate. So it's our pumps in there. So it's wrecked it forever for me. But anyway, <laughs> the uh, – so – World's Finest Comics dates back to 1941, but uh, it wasn't really until 1954 and World's Finest Comics number 71 that Superman and Batman started teaming up. So before that, typically Superman, Batman, and Robin were always interacting uh, on the cover. Man, there are some great Golden Age covers there of them playing baseball or planning Victory Gardens and stuff. A lot of the really neat World War II imagery there uh, through the 40s. But uh, with World's Finest Comics number 71 in 1954, that title then at that point became a Superman and Batman team-up book, and Robin was typically involved as well then uh, late 60s early 70s a little title called brave and the bold which started out as just an adventure title uh, in the 50s had a lot of characters like uh, viking prince and robin hood and the silent knight i really love those adventure type stories a lot of great uh, really bob haney written stories robert canninger written stories and then art by like murphy anderson and mm. joe hubert but then obviously uh that book got quite the overhaul starting with uh number 28 with the introduction of the, the justice league. And then after that, so uh, there'd be various, very similar to showcase and that there'd be uh, new characters introduced. that would have a two or three issue run. And then another character would come over. And then as you start to move through the sixties, that became just kind of a DC team up books. So you'd get like the Adam teaming up with the flash. And then towards the tail end of the sixties there, that became a Batman team up book. Well, that became very popular. and Batman is one of their two big characters along with Superman. So Since Batman became the kind of the reoccurring feature in the team-up book of Brave and the Bold, they had the same idea to, well, let's do it with Superman as well. So starting with issue 198 of World's Finest, which went on sale in September 1970, World's Finest became a Superman team-up book. So the first two issues, number 198 and 199, featured a race with the Flash Barry Allen. Now, this is fitting because most people, when they think of the Superman team-up book, they think of DC Comics Presents. Well, that was launched in 1978 to correspond with the 50th anniversary of Superman. Well, the first two issues of that, two-parter team-up of Superman and The Flash. So, nice uh, bit of symmetry there that his stint in World's Finest is that being his team-up book is with The Flash. And then when he actually gets DC Comics Presents, likewise, team-up with Barry Allen. And so then uh, with issue 200, Superman teamed up with just Robin – uh, 201 was Green Lantern. Hal Jordan was Superman. And then 202, Batman was back to team up with Superman. And uh, that cover probably stands out to Zack Snyder because I think Superman's like choking Batman out. He <laughs> thought that was a great idea to make a movie out of. Anyway, <laughs> 203, uh, Superman teamed up with Aquaman. And 204, Superman and Wonder Woman. I believe that was like uh, white...
1: Yeah, the mod... Um, yeah.
2: Mod uh, Wonder Woman era. 205, he teamed up with Teen Titans. Now 206 was kind of a... Uh, Giant-sized issue in that uh, was a bunch of just uh, Batman and Superman reprints, and that was actually in the eighty-page giant series. So, eighty-page giants first started out as eighty-page annuals. Then, uh, in 1964, it actually became the eighty-page giant series that ran 15 issues, G one through 15. After that, the eighty-page giant series ended, but the eighty-page giant format continued on through regular monthly titles. So. And then it also had like a G-whatever continued that numbering on. So G-16 was the first 80-page giant that wasn't within its own series. That was actually Justice League number 39 and actually had G-16 on the cover. So yes. the last one was G-89. That was Justice League number 93. But by that point, the page count had been stripped down to 64 pages. And 206 then, World's Finest 206, was one of the last of those. That was actually G-88. So it would have been the second-to-last one for that JLA-93. And so that was a 64-page giant, just all mostly 50s and uh, 60s Superman and Batman team-ups reprinted in that. So then 207, regular new feature, World's Finest, is Batman once again. And then that brings us to 208, um, this issue here where Superman teams up with Dr. Fate. It kind of returned back to a Superman and Batman team-up, starting with 215 and 216. That was kind of the beginning of the Bob Haney Super Sons mm-hmm. era. that ran through those first two issues. And then uh two seventeen it was back to just regular Superman and Batman team up. And of course that format would be messed up a little bit too once uh World's Finest became a one hundred page super spectacular kind of reoccurring series as well. And then eventually I think it's two forty five or two forty six becomes the, the world's finest era. Uh two forty four. Or two forty four. Yep. Okay. Dollar comics era world's finest and that stuff is just awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, love it. So All right, you ready to talk about this story? Yeah. Alright, from World's Finest 208, Peril of the Planet Smashers, is written by Len Wein, with art by Dick Dillon and Joe Giella. On Earth 2, a trio of domestic terrorists threaten to blow up Salem, Massachusetts with a stolen thermal ray. Dr. Fate intervenes, using his power of magic to subdue the terrorists and return the weapon to the police. Then he is called to the Weatherby Free Clinic, where, in his civilian identity as Dr. Kent Nelson, he works as one of the nation's top surgeons. When Nelson arrives in the operating room, he is alarmed to find an alien on the table. Apparently, this alien was hovering in the air above the city when it was clipped by the wing of an airplane. Telepathically, the alien warns Nelson that Earth is doomed. Doomed. On another world, literally, Earth-1, Superman eliminates a radioactive cloud by sucking it into his lungs, flying out into space, and blowing it into the sun. He does all of this while contemplating his weakness to magic, having nearly died in the previous issue from Dr. Light's Satan staff. He wonders if his magical weakness might not have an equally magical cure, and goes to see the Princess of Prestidigitation for answers. Zatanna is in the middle of a rehearsal for her stage show, turning an elephant into butterflies with the spell T'Naple Moseb saelfretub." unfortunately zatanna doesn't know how to cure superman of his aversion to magic nor could her more experienced father zatara disappointed but undeterred superman crosses the dimensional barrier to earth two to get a second opinion from a sorcerer even older and more powerful than the zatara's The Man of Steel flies to the hospital where he finds Dr. Nelson treating the alien. Nelson is encouraged by Superman's unexpected arrival and transports the two of them and his otherworldly patient to his secret sanctuary, the Tower of Fate. Dr. Fate uses a crystal to project mental images from the comatose alien's mind, but all they're able to see are images of a Mayan temple in the Yucatan and Stonehenge in England with no other clues as to what danger the alien prophesied superman and dr fate fly off in separate directions to investigate the two leads fate flies to the yucatan there he sees a second almost identical alien sitting in a yoga position in mid-air over the mayan temple Dr. Fate tries to question the alien, who responds by telekinetically attacking the sorcerer with overgrown plant life. Weeds ensnare Dr. Fate. He blasts them away, but more and more pile on until he is pinned. A giant orchid sprays Fate with gas, rendering him unconscious. The living vegetation then throws Dr. Fate into the mouth of a Venus flytrap. The plant seems to be digesting Dr. Fate, when all of a sudden he bursts violently from its insides dr fate demands answers from the alien but the being scoffs at him and disappears claiming its work is done across the world superman arrives at stonehenge and finds another alien sitting in a meditative trance over the stone monument When Superman attempts to rouse the alien, a giant hand made of sand and dirt on the ground rises up and catches him. The sand then grows, taking the shape of a colossal warrior. Superman attempts to punch his way out of the giant's grasp, but the sand simply reforms around where the Man of Steel's blows struck. Changing tactics, Superman uses his heat vision to bake the sand, turning the giant into glass, which he then shatters into a thousand tiny pieces with one powerful punch the alien will still not be bothered by superman casting an invisible shield to keep the last son of krypton from touching him then this alien too vanishes superman heads back to the tower of fate hoping the doctor had better luck But the doom the first alien spoke of may already be upon this Earth, as Dr. Fate and Superman are each confronted by cataclysmic events on their way to Salem—tidal waves, earthquakes, volcanoes—each threatening countless deaths and untold destruction, if not for the intervention of our heroes. Eventually, they make it back to Fate's tower. Once more, Dr. Fate uses his magic crystal, this time probing deeper into the comatose alien psyche and revealing its villainous plot. The alien is U, one of three high lamas of an ancient race called the Budak, who believe nirvana can be achieved on Earth, of all places. Using their powers, they have begun moving the continents in an effort to smash them all together. The Budak believe that by psychically tapping into the immeasurable energy generated by the continental collision, their kind can find enlightenment. The heroes track the three alien lamas to the skies above Ur, They attack, but the mystic power of the aliens easily fends them off. Dr. Fate conceives of a risky plan, one that could kill he and Superman both but they're desperate. He summons the crystal from his tower and uses it to channel all of his mystic powers and transfer them into the invulnerable body of Superman. Now the Man of Steel is empowered with the greatest eldritch energies on the planet. He flies to the aliens. They strike back with all their dark magic power, but Superman is able to overcome his weakness to magic with help from fate. At last, Superman punches the force field protecting the aliens. All of their combined powers result in an energy loop that destroys the Budak. The threat to the planet is not over yet, though. The aliens may be defeated, but the continents are still converging. Dr. Fate's power is drained after passing it on to Superman, but he's still strong enough to conjure some magical chains, chains that Superman uses to literally drag the continents back to their rightful place. Once the crisis, that's a lowercase crisis, by the way, is averted, Dr. Fate finally asks what brought the Earth-1 Superman to Earth-2 in the first place. Superman tells him he wanted to become invulnerable to magic, but now he's changed his mind. Had he been invulnerable when the story began, they never could have defeated the Budak. Maybe it's destiny that Superman has a weakness to mystic forces. Either way, he will live with it. After all, since there was no more kryptonite at this time, writers needed something to throw at the man of tomorrow. The end. All right, Kyle, what did you think of the story?
2: I love everything about this one. I love Ween's writing on it. It's very well-paced there's some very nice little brooding moments and kind of internal thought balloons and reflective moments to give insight into both characters psyche and persona, especially Dr. Fate. It's not like he had a normal or regular ongoing series. So this 24 page kind of team up book is kind of all you'd get uh, for a while. And some really great uh, insight into who the character is. There's a lot of great little narration, but bo- uh, boxes, you know, the intro splash page text there, uh, page six, a superman crosses over to earth too. There's, some great uh, narration there that I can just hear like Ted Knight's voice saying that on Super Friends it'd be awesome and uh, page uh, 7 panels 1 and 2 some other uh, great dialogue moments here with me page 7 takes the cake here on the crisp of a windswept craig actually I'm going to do it in a Ted Knight voice <laughs> On the crest of a windswept crag that borders Old Salem stands a strange stone tower, its rough-hewn walls devoid of doors or windows, the sanctuary of Dr. Fate. And inside this bizarre refuge, two equally exotic figures stand and consider a third.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, yeah. No, I love I love, it. I love that, that too. Just like the, the descriptions that he gives to some of these. Fantastic.
2: The only moment that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me is why does the Budak llama or whatever they... Uh, that Doctor Fate interacts with. Why does he warn them if it's if he's one of the ones trying to destroy the Earth?
1: Yeah, that's that's one of the weird ones that he gives him that telepathic warning and then just shows up with the others even after he's been comatose. That's not exactly clear. Um, yeah, I I really enjoyed this story. This is a team up that doesn't necessarily like jump out like as something obvious, but I really like these two guys together. Superman and Dr. Fate, they are so kind of different. I mean, one, Superman has a very science fiction-based background, but he's all about sort of, uh, I mean, he is smart, he's a super genius, but you think of him as sort of the the champion of physical power, that strength. And Dr. Fate, mystical, supernatural origins. You think of him more sort of sorcery and powers, not necessarily physical. Very different But they look really, really cool standing next to each other. I mean, Superman and Batman have, like, obviously, like, they look great when they're next to each other. But I think Superman, Dr. Fate, just the visual. They both have a lot of blue on their costumes. But another, like, harsh primary color as their cape, as their accents with the boots, the the underpants. They just look cool together. And they're both kind of like the champions of their particular field. And you know, you know... If there's a thing that needs Superman and Doctor Fate working together, that's like a world-threatening crisis. So.
2: Yeah, exactly. I feel the same way and I've I've always felt that way about the supernatural characters in Batman as well. Mm-hmm. My favorite Batman stories have always been times he's teaming up with Doctor Fate or Deadman or the Phantom Stranger or the Spectre. Just that uh, I mean, again, he's kind of the best that humanity yeah. can embody in the sense of super smart as good a physically fit as a human being can be, you know, world's greatest detective, you know, the street level guy played off of this force of you know, supernatural or unknown or magic based. And so I'm like a lot of people that uh, I have a hard time getting into long solo runs of characters that are magic based. I've never really been able to get into a big Sorcerer Supreme Doctor Strange run or anything like that because, you know, everybody says, well, they just pull some spell out of their ass at the last second. and mm-hmm do that. But you you don't really get into that as much with, with team-up books. So it's always great to see, like you said, either Superman or Batman, someone that's the best in their own right paired up with the best of kind of this unknown thing where you don't know the limits and that dynamic of playing those two characters off each other to face this incomprehensible threat. That's when a team-up book really shines, I think. And that's why I have a, a big fondness for DC Comics Presents and World's yeah. Finest. I mean, that's essentially the same dynamic between Superman and Batman as well. The Best that a normal human being can be against, you know, this champion from the stars mm-hmm. and then uh, Brave and the Bold as well. So I, I always love those uh, three team-up books, especially from this era. Yeah, The art is fantastic. It's it's pretty much perfect uh, as far as what I want out of it. I mean, there's a few wonky panels, but when you think about it, it's a 24-page story, typically four to five panels per page. So you know you're looking at 100 to 125 panels or so. There's maybe 10 that don't look right, and that's still <laughs> 100 pretty awesome looking panels.
1: Yeah, and, I think uh, I think Dick Dylan's Dr. Fate looks great. I love the way he draws him throughout the story.
2: Oh, yeah, that progression of Dr. Fate fighting the Venus flytrap down the Yucatan, pages 10 to 11. is just awesome. There's some really great brooding moments with Dr. Fate where he's holding orbs or kind of looking uh, <laughs> over the globe and stuff like that. It's just awesome. I, there's people that say, like, Dick to Ellen isn't that flashy and, you know, that maybe Kurt Swan isn't either and stuff. But especially when you're comparing them to people like Neil Adams, who did the cover, or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, guys that are really, a lot of times, too, predominantly cover artists because they were being pulled in so many different directions doing merchandising art. and. Mm-hmm doing so many covers and they weren't necessarily always the fastest either but for me 70s house style dc i just love and so things like dick Dillon, Kurt swan nick cardi and ross andrew that really kind of makes up the definitive classic dc house style for me and look
1: yeah yeah i see it um, still on the subject of Dr. Fate, we get some biographical information about him in this story, like a couple of different mentions that I, I thought maybe you would have a better sense of him, because I, I don't know as much about his, his history and some of his earlier appearances. For one thing, was he actually a surgeon, like, as Kent Nelson?
2: Yes, he was, and uh, one of that was established... In the golden age and they played fast and loose with mm-hmm. stuff but it was actually the most at the time we're recording this the most recent episode of ed moore's lords of order dr fate mm-hmm. podcast he was recounting a golden age tale where uh, kent nelson is kind of this understudy as an actual doctor to like the greatest heart surgeon there is hmm. in america and so he's studying to be a surgeon and that was established back in the golden age that he was an actual doctor and so that was kind of a Neat little callback that I don't know how much that stuck or if they showed him uh, progress because I I haven't read that many Golden Age stories of his, mostly his earlier appearances. So Ed's getting to covering stories now that hearing him recount it in audio form is the first time I've ever heard some of those. But it's actually fresh in my mind since I just listened to it yesterday or or two days ago when he he put it out. But in that specific story, uh, Kit Nelson was an actual doctor.
1: Okay, because I never that never occurred to me that he was like an actual medical doctor. I always for some reason, just thought of him as a as an archaeologist because that was part of his origin. Yeah. And I didn't really think about his civilian life after that. Never occurred to me. Um, a few other things about like when he goes to face the Budak Lama in the Yucatan, uh, he mentions how well I know this place. Has it been years or merely moments since the last I fought my old four mayor upon this very site? Do you know if that's referencing a specific story?
2: I do not. Because um, I'm trying to... I should have refreshed on his publishing history before this. Because, I mean, he would have been involved in the you know annual um, JSA, JLA crossovers occurring in the pages of Justice League of America at the time. And it would have been mid-60s when he would have been in a couple showcase issues where him and Our Man fought yeah. Solomon Grundy. And I'm trying to think... If he would have had any solo outings, as like maybe a backup feature in like Action Comics or one of the larger anthology titles, in between them, I, nothing sticks out.
1: Oh, I just I just looked it up on Mike's Amazing World. The character Mayor that he mentions appeared in one story in More Fun Comics 64 from 1941.
2: So, I've been fairly early on in his publishing history.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it might have been, like, one of his very first sort of, like, super villains, but just a done & One, so interesting that he that he went back there.
2: I'm really surprised then, too, if, because Mike's typically pretty good at working in the uh, All-Star Squadron history as well, and mm-hmm. I, I know Dr. Fate didn't feature too much in those series, but, uh, in that series, but I'm kind of surprised then that Roy Thomas didn't bring back the character, especially since he had a Bronze Age mention here as well, mm-hmm. uh, that he would have kind of worked that in, I know, uh. Some of the very early, like Hawkman, uh, villains and people they encountered, like there was a, uh, like the granddaughter of a, a Mayan priestess trying to make a human sacrifice, and one of those very early Hawkman Golden Age stories, and Roy Thomas incorporated her into All Star Squadron. Some kind of sa- surprised you can do the same here.
1: Hmm, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I just looked up there. the third one that I was thinking of was their final confrontation when they go to the Valley of Ur. And I was like that Ur. I think the where that is is like current day Iraq, and I thought his origin was more of tied to like what is present day Egypt. Uh, but I just did a quick looking it up, and that the Valley of Ur that was actually his what his origin was supposed to be in Mesopotamia. So
2: yeah, the Egypt thing, which is you know I'll probably what's most associated with the character, that really didn't come into play until the Marty Pascal Walt Simonson first issue special. Mm-hmm. That's really when that started to become prominent.
1: Um, other things that you that you liked about the story? Um, in terms of just the art, again, I, I love the kind of montage pages when we just see Superman, you know, like trying to basically bottle up a volcano by shoving a giant boulder into the cauldron, uh, like holding an earthquake, the things, getting people out of the way as buildings are collapsing. That's just like a great classic what Superman does in times of catastrophe page, so
2: yeah that was really neat and i I love the art in pages 13 and 14 where Superman's fighting the big mm-hmm. giant or giant uh sand monster warrior there that's yeah. uh those are a couple of gorgeous pages there oh man the, the that first one on 13 where the giant's rising up out of the sand's got a hold of him. that's just that's an awesome panel
1: yeah yeah it is. and this is two issues in a row that Superman does what I want him to do like in 207 you know Superman went to confront Dr. Light Dr. Light had his gun he's like that shoots red kryptonite and Superman just flew behind him so fast that Doctor Light couldn't like block it. He's like, yes, that's what Superman is capable of doing. He should do that more often. He shouldn't get stuck like at, when he a villain holds him at gunpoint. And here it is, you know. As soon as this guy, okay, he's made of sand. Like I was saying, Superman fry him, bake him, turn him into glass, and that's what he does. So I I like it when the writers actually have fun with Superman's powers and recognize how smart and how capable he is. So this was this was fun to read.
2: Yeah, and I think this era is often overlooked for some of the gems like that that are mm. tucked into these stories because a lot of the stories are kind of one-done, plot-driven, thrown-away things. But there's some really neat character moments, and a lot of writers and artists get pretty unique with showing just the vast array of Superman's powers for little moments. I mean, there's the whole thing of, whoa, it's hard to drum up a threat for a guy that can blow out a star or whatever, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of neat moments back uh God, this is years ago now, but I, I made a guest appearance for the Conway crossover with uh, on the uh, Superman's podcast with Chris and Cindy Franklin, and we covered uh, some Superman family stories from, it would have been a little after this, it would have been the Dollar Comics era, so probably 78, 79-ish, uh, that were written by Jerry Conway, and that one, there was a neat one where uh, Superman was taking on these armed militant government in africa somewhere Mm -hmm. and they have guns affixed so what superman does is i think it's he picks up a car and moves his hands on it super fast to magnetize it and that pulls all the guns away Mm -hmm. i mean just neat little moments like that like you said turn the big sand giant into glass just sticking the uh, big boulder into the volcano just using his powers in unique ways and not just being super powerful and winking and having it uh taking care of itself so every time I I kind of go back and revisit some of these one and done stories like this there's always hidden gems like this of neat little plot devices where Superman uses powers in a really fun interesting way and yeah. that's what I really love about this era of Superman there's not necessarily too many big long lasting epic stories that leave an imprint on your mind i mean obviously people throw out the kryptonite nevermore which is around this time and uh, you know there's uh, the issue or the story that ran through 1976 in the bicentennial where superman kind of goes back in time when he's fighting carbrack that was a four or five part story things like that kind of stick out but just for fun enjoyable superhero comics i I really love the superman ones from this era because there's just neat little things like like we see in here and they're a lot of fun and enjoyable to read and throw them back in your bag and board and go about your day
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right page five we gotta talk about the page with Zatanna on it because that's the whole point of this podcast.
2: Oh yeah, that's what this podcast is about.
1: <laughs> so I, I liked seeing her. I liked that she actually got to speak in this issue, which she didn't last time around. But um, I gotta say, like some of the things that she mentions, like first of all, she says that her father Zatara told her that to know how their powers work would cause them to stop working.
2: Yeah, I was like, what the heck.
1: <laughs> I'm going to call bullshit on that. Either she's lying or her father lied to her, because that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's well,
2: she probably asked him when she was, like, four years old, like, Daddy, how do our powers work? Don't ask that.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's got to be something <laughs> like that. Leave me that. alone. I'm watching TV. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's like, is it just – like, uh, I was trying to no-prize this. Like, I was like, okay, is he is he trying to make the distinction, like, magic has – it's not science, it's not fact-based, it's not something that you can necessarily explain away, but that's not exactly what she says. She says to know how they work would cause them to stop organizing. No, that's bullshit. That's something that you tell somebody when you want to keep them ignorant, when you want to keep them in the dark. And then, likewise, if you were in her position, if you could cure Superman of his weakness to magic, would you? Because maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking too much like post-Crisis Batman, but if I've got that gun in the chamber, I don't know if I'm turning it over. I mean I I that's like especially if this is a time when Kryptonite is kind of taken off the table because of the Kryptonite Nevermore thing that you mentioned. Magic might be the only thing that can stop him, and if for some reason he were to go bad or he were to go rogue or you needed to stop him. If I've got magic, I'm not taking that weakness away from him. I'm using that just as a as a worst-case scenario type of thing. So, like, when he says, can you cure me of magic? If he asked me, I might say, nope, sorry, it's impossible.
2: Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And I mean, all the time, DC Comics, you have characters being possessed or mm. their minds swapped with alien invaders and things like that. I mean... When you talk about one and done stories and Superman having three different ongoing titles, you're getting whatever, thirty six Superman stories a year. I'm sure that plot device was probably used at least once a year. But the good thing about it being in a fantasy world is since it's not the real world. You don't have to worry about the real world reacting, right, right. freaking out, which doesn't seem to be a concept they can get nowadays. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so so it would have thought like, yeah, last week when the alien vision came and they displaced Superman's mind to the Phantom Zone, it was a good thing we had magic around. You
1: know, <laughs> yeah. I, it's, maybe that makes me too close to, you know, starting my own brother eye satellite, but uh, I'm <laughs> – kind of thinking that, you know what, maybe having that one weakness could be a good thing, just in case. Just in case.
2: Yeah, well, I... Would she be able to lie to Superman, though? He'd probably be able to tell that her uh, heartbeat her pulse had increased so he knew she was lying.
1: It depends on who is writing the story. So Len Wein is writing the story. If Mike Friedrich had been writing the story, like Superman would be in love with Zatanna. He would be dizzy just being in the same room as her because that's how all of the men reacted around her in, in some of her early appearances, especially that Justice League story where the men couldn't keep their hands off of her.
2: Yeah, she would have told him that the cure to his magic woes was making out
1: with her. <laughs> oh, and he would have fallen for it. All
2: right, the last and then, th- then his memory would have been erased and he forgot uh, <laughs> her secret identity. Oh, wait, no.
1: no <laughs> <me> Others- too. <laughs> the um, super kiss. <laughs> see, that's, that's the thing. They're both kind of known at this point for taking people's memories. So <laughs> what, if, what if she did the identity crisis lobotomy type of thing at the same time he did the super kiss that gives him amnesia? Yeah. That'd be tough. Um, Okay, the last thing that I wanted to mention was page 23, when we actually get the page of Superman pulling the continent with the chains and Dr. Fate in the background. I like this moment. I like the idea of this moment, uh, of this sort of Herculean feat. They actually draw the comparison, the labors of Hercules. Uh, I like what Superman is trying to accomplish here. I just think that this is one of the weaker panels in terms of the art and what Dick Dillon has been doing, and especially compared to the cover. Now, I know that's not fair to necessarily compare, because the time and the effort that Neil Adams put into it, and also just, he's Neil Adams, but I just think that page with Superman pulling the chains just seems really weak by comparison.
2: Yes, it does, and that's unfortunate. And, again, I, I like a little bit of the layout aspect because I think Dr. Fate's mm-hmm. silhouette in the background there, almost in the surprint. If they would have been able to incorporate something like that into the cover, I think that would have made the cover stronger. But, yeah, the execution is just – doesn't really look like Superman's straining really either or anything like that. His knees are kind of rubbery, and he's floating there in midair, and he's just kind of got the chains humped over his shoulder. Definitely doesn't have the kind of the epicness and the strain that the, the cover captures it's just not as dynamic of a a pose either. And then we kind of went on and on about the kind of Kirby inspired, what it seemed like harness Mm -hmm. to just four gold chains. Yeah. Not quite the same thing.
1: All right. But other than that, this was a really fun story. I mean, I, Selfishly, I wish Zatanna was a bigger part of the story because I like Zatanna. That's why I do the podcast. But forgetting that just as a team-up story, just as an adventure with two superheroes that I really like, this was great. I, I wish I could see more team-ups of Superman and Dr. Fate. This made me want to read more of these two guys, and that should be one of the best compliments you can lay at, at a comic, is this made me want to read more about these guys. So,
2: eh. Yeah, Absolutely.
1: Any final thoughts?
2: Uh, I did have one. If you go to, the, did you read through the letters column at all?
1: Uh, I did not. Or I might have, like uh, two years ago when I got this comic, but I haven't done it recently.
2: There was a letter in there from a Tom Payer from uh, Syracuse, New York. Is and that? The- I believe that's probably the Tom Payer who was a pretty prevalent uh, comic writer for DC in the late '80s and early '90s.
1: Yeah! Wow. Oh, he did the Hour Man in 1999 that everybody talks about.
2: Yeah, the uh, Android one.
1: Yeah, everybody the one. Everybody raves about that one. I've never read it.
2: Yeah, I've only read the appearances in the JSA. I haven't been able to find the single issues. Yeah, yeah I've heard a lot of good things. Yeah. Some are the types of things that like people like Greg Arujo always post on mm-hmm. uh, Twitter that they found for like 10 cents and stuff, and <laughs> I never find any of that awesome stuff.
1: Yeah, my access to legitimately cheap bins is pretty scarce. Most of my like, sort of dumpy long boxes, they're still about a dollar, if not more.
2: Yeah, dollars is typically the best we do around here, and there's typically newer comics. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I think, only two half-price bookstores in Iowa. The one's in Des Moines that has 50-cent bins, and I went to the one in Marion There's around Cedar Rapids just two weeks ago. That was the first time I'd ever been there and those were dollar boxes. Yeah. And I got a bunch of uh, Astro City comics. But I was kind of hoping to find some Mr. Miracle and New Gods issues from the 90s. I'm and, and disappointed they didn't have much 90s DC like I thought they would.
1: Hmm. All right, Kyle. Where else can people find you if they want to hear more from your thoughts on Superman or other comic book characters?
2: Uh, I have a quite a backlog of like 150 episodes or so on the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast feed. Uh, you can go to the blog Comics Giant com and all the episodes of various shows are there. Uh, the show is currently on hiatus. Hopefully those uh, episodes are still active. They were at the time of this recording. I'm going to be moving them to a, a free feed instead and uh, once I kind of get all that and some of the early episodes weren't in mp3 format so get those converted and re-uploaded and then when uh, my job isn't sucking the life out of me and I actually have a lunch hour to sit down and record new episodes, I will do that. So, <laughs> no idea when that'll be. But Right now, I'm just polluting the fire and water feed uh, one show at a time.
1: That's true. You're making the rounds. We'll have to see. I know I'll definitely get you on uh, an episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour sometime.
2: That'll be fun. Yeah. I love those Factor stories, but uh, your guest in the, the first one really set the bar up <laughs> at an uh, unsurpassable height there.
1: That was good. That's why it's taken me so long to get back into that run.
2: <laughs> oh, his synopsis was just great, which was great when you had him on uh, Secret Origins as well. He was like, oh, man, you can't,
1: you can't top that. Howard is fantastic. Well, I can't anyway. I'm boring. It's <laughs> exciting to listen to. But. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on this episode of Power of Fishnets, Kyle. It was good talking to you again.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me aboard. Hi, I'm Kyle Benning, and I love comics. In fact, I love them so much that I ramble on about them on a number of podcasts, all on one feed, found under the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun banner. I talk about comics with extra page counts, like Treasury Comics, Prestige Format Books, DC's Dollar Comics, Marvel's Giant Size Specials and King Size Daniels, and much, much more. I also love to talk about DC's Christ on Multiple Earth crossovers, free comics from special promos, free comic book day, Star Wars, my life as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, random comic book back issues, and many other elements of geek culture that happen to strike my fancy. There's new content usually dropping at least once a week, and it's all found on one feed. You can subscribe via iTunes. Just search for King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun in the iTunes store or podcast app on your iPhone. Otherwise, you can follow the podcast at the King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun blog headquarters, available at www.kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com. That's all one word, king size comics giant size or follow on Facebook by simply searching for king-size-comics-giant-size-fun. So for snappy review and discussions on comics, new and old, usually done from the front seat of my car or my lunch break at work, check out king-size-comics-giant-size-fun.
1: Episode 20, which was my coverage of World's Finest 247, the Island of Dr. Moreau story with Black Canary and Green Arrow, received Twitter favorites and retweets from The 108th Sage, Ange at DrAnge70, Brian Mulvey, Browncoat, Coffee and Comics, Columbus Comics Corner, Comic Reflections, Daniel Tenerello, David Ace Gutierrez, DC in the 80s, Film and Water Podcast, Hicks at Reading Underscore Hicks, Jacob Edwards, Justice's First Dawn, Kirk at Kirk Van Lund, Longbox Crusade, Mario at Luther Lang, Nathaniel Wayne, Pod Dylan, Richard Field, Rolled Spine Podcast, Siskoid, Terrence Castingue, and Treasury Comics. I got new Facebook likes and shares from Aaron Henley, Abba Daba, Abel Padilla, Alan Wright, Billy Lacasse, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robinson, Cosmic Cat Comics, David Ace Gutierrez, David Foster, Gord Tolton, H. Daniel Rybolt, Kyle Benning, Leslie Trigg III, Rob Kelly, Scott Cage, Sean Emmons, The Irredeemable Shag, Sean Strawbridge, Sisgoid, Terence Castanguay, Terry O'Malley, and Trevor Owen Williams. Moving on to the comments posted on the Fire & Water Podcast Network website, that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Dr. Ange, who said, I find Sal Amendola's art a little uneven in this story. At times, it looked like he's a disciple of Toth, especially that opening splash of her character. At times it looks like Joe Staton's more cartoony style, Page 4 in particular. And at times it looks scratchy like Tony DeZuniga. The Scream panel is a good example. While it's good overall, I was lamenting the lack of Nasser." Those are all really good comparisons, Ange, especially how Toth-like she looks on that first panel, I do concede that Mike Nasser's art on this chapter probably would have been better, certainly more consistent. But I still really enjoyed Amendola's art, though I might be biased because of, you know, (laughs) Dinah's breasts. Uh, Speaking of that, Martin Gray said Dinah's bosom looked scarily deformed and utterly fake, like they're going to impale someone. Chris Franklin, on the other hand, defended the art saying, don't besmirch the boobies. But Siskoid 2 said he found the anatomy in that panel unsettling. Anyway, back to Ange's comment, he said, As you say, heading to the island of Dr. Moreau is a one-trick pony. You can't go to that Wells too often. Ugh, with the puns, Ange. Lastly, he said, That must be industrial-strength Velcro or serious duct tape on that towel Dinah is fighting in. How did it not fall off given the crazy kicks and flips? Insanity. It's the physics of superhero comics, my friends. Uh, Rob Kelly said, Dinah takes another shower. It makes me think what Batman comics would read like if they were primarily written by women. I guess Bruce would be cleaning up after every little skirmish. On an unrelated note, we see Green Arrow get a shower in Justice League of America 201, so I guess there was something about the duo that made their writers include scenes of them freshening up. You know, I have been trying to come up with another couple in mainstream superhero comics that is more sexual in their depiction, both overtly and subliminally. Like, the impression you always get is that when Ollie and Dinah aren't fighting criminals, they're going at it like jackrabbits. Does any other couple have that reputation? If you can think of someone, let me know, anybody. Uh, Rob continues, I really like Amendola's art. It has a nice combo of grit and cartooniness that I find appealing. I've read interviews with him, and he admits that it was his own self-consciousness and nervous temperament that really kept him from being a bigger name in comics. Too bad, because his work here is quite good and full of energy. Uh, Chris Don't Besmirch the Boobies Franklin said, I had to bypass this week's Fire and Water and Treasure cast to listen to this episode first. Sorry, Robin Shag, because as I said before, this comic made quite the impression on me. At two and a half years old, I saw boobies. I'm still not sure how that panel of Dinah Justice disrobing in front of a werewolf she just met made it into a code-approved comic, but I am forever grateful. Thanks, Jerry and Sal. I gotta imagine that the clerk or whoever from standards and practices looked at that page and was every bit as enamored of Dinah's wreck as you were, Chris, and then slapped the CCA stamp on the cover thinking he was doing Kids Like You a public service. Gord Tolton asked if there was an actual trans-Canadian superhighway where one might drive leisurely to Queens Ridge alongside a fish-netted woman on a motorcycle with a werewolf clinging to her, and Cisco had confirmed that, yes, that is a real thing. Dishwater Danny said, This has become my favorite show on the network. Your synopsises are by far the best. Well, thank you very much for that, Danny. I do work hard on them. Lewis said this story reminded him of the episode Tiger Tiger from Batman the Animated Series, where Batman travels to the island of Dr. Dorian to rescue Catwoman from his animal-human hybrid henchmen. Yeah, I thought of that episode too, and I admit... I kind of like that episode. I'm not sure it really fits in with the rest of this series. It is a bit of a leap in tone and logic, but I still kind of liked it. I didn't love it, I'm not saying it was awesome, but I would watch it again anytime. Chuck Coletta said, I just picked up the new collection of Paul Dini's Zatanna stories, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this in the future. Well, that is great news, Chuck. The only thing I would advise is manage your expectations of when I will get to that book. For the Zatanna portion of this podcast, I am going chronologically like an index show. However... That is only up to the point where she joins the Justice League and changes her costume. Once she sheds the fishnets, all bets are off. There's still, I think, 16 more appearances before that happens in Justice League of America 161, but some of them I will be doubling up on, because she had a string in Adventure Comics coming up that were like five-page stories. I'll get through a couple of those in the same episode, so... Hopefully, by next year, I'll have wrapped up Zatanna's first Fishnets run, and then I can float around to other random stories, and I will review the material in that trade, and people, check it out if you haven't already, Zatanna by Paul Dini. You should at least love one of those two names if you're listening to this podcast. It collects a one-shot Vertigo story called Practical Magic that sees Zatanna cleaning up after one of John Constantine's screw-ups, and then it collects her entire series that came out a couple of years ago. Very cool collection, it looks great, and I can't wait to review it. Well, I can wait. I have to. Um, Chuck also mentions Zatanna's recent appearance in Scooby-Doo Team-Up. I will definitely cover that, too. Not sure when, maybe sooner than later. We'll see. Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey said, I really enjoyed the story by Conway, but like Ange, felt the art was uneven at times. Having said that, it did not detract from my enjoyment of the story. I would really love a Black Canary story from this era that is not tied to the apron strings of Green Arrow, though. Hey, me too, Jimmy, me too. And there's a few coming up in World's Finest after 250, I think? Uh, Bradley Null said, Great episode. Wish I had time to say more. You said plenty, Bradley. You said more than enough. Uh, Browncoat said, The other day I wrote what I hoped was an absolutely super cool post about how much I loved this particular Black Canary appearance. Unfortunately, I didn't post it like I should have when it got to a certain point. Wanted to finish it before posting. Big mistake. Ended up my phone's web browser reset itself and wiped out my post completely. That sucks. I am sorry. I, I think we've all felt that kind of pain at some point. You just want to throw your phone or your computer across the room. But, uh, hey, I'm glad you recovered, though. Way to get up off the mat. Uh, he continues, I just want to say that I love this issue. It's one of my top ten favorite Black Canary stories. I mean, Dinah in Only a Towel is fantastic, no doubt. But I can think of at least four Black Canary art moments in it that are absolutely gold. That absolutely flirty, hi, I'm Black Canary, check out my story shot on the first page of the tale awesome. That lovely little oops-I-had-it-all-wrong moment when Wolf clues Dinah in on what's been going on behind the scenes the whole time? Fabulous. And the last two pages of the tale, when we get damsel in distress Dinah, a quite common occurrence for Dinah back in the glorious days of the 70s and 80s, as a helpless, dangling captive of the somewhat lecherous-looking Dr. Murrow. Amazing, amazing. I mean, is he kind of torturing her with his cane in the upper portion of the last page? I've always wondered. Now, I sincerely realize that it's not exactly modern or progressive of me to find Dinah in peril to be a sexy thing. But you know, that is comic books of that day and age, the age of my youth, written and drawn by guys of a different time that knew how to target their target audience. So as such, I'm still a total chump for damsel-in-distress-type artwork, bless you pulp material sensibilities. And so I hope that doesn't paint me in too bad of a light. But, Lord have mercy, those last two pages of the Canary story are something. As always, bless girls in fishnet pantyhose, bless you all. And Brownco also left me a short and sweet little iTunes review, thank you very much for that. As for the damsel in distress part of the story, first, you are right, the art is terrific. She looks great, no denying that. And yes, they were pushing these stories to an audience of boys in the 1970s who overwhelmingly were not concerned with female empowerment. That's just a fact of the market. I also want to make it clear that I have zero problem with Dinah getting jumped and captured. Even as the protagonist of her own story, that can be done in a way that works. You guys ever hear of James Bond? He gets captured in every damn movie, and we love seeing him escape. I just wish I got to see Dinah do that part on her own in this story. I wish Ali didn't have to come to her rescue, even though he got captured too. I wish the story didn't depend on the wolf sacrificing himself to save her. Even though it is sweet, it still makes her an object in the story, which is my problem with it. But, oh well, let's move on. Nathaniel Wayne said, I know you probably tried to scrub your brain of this, but I have to wonder if the man-animal precedent set by these stories was part of the inspiration for the Dillos being so haphazardly introduced in the last issue of her 90s title. Son of a bitch, why did you remind me of that? Uh, If you want to know what Nathaniel is referring to, read Black Canary issue 12, the last issue of her series from 1993, or You know what? Better yet, don't read it. It's terrible. Listen to the final episode of Flowers and Fishnets, my Black Canary podcast that preceded this one. Nathaniel and I covered that story. And yes, there are these mutant creatures that are half wolf, half armadillo. Not even the dumbest thing in the issue, though. Uh, And finally, the last comment came from Diablo Frank, who said, I started the only extended Martian Manhunter arc of the 1970s with Mike Nasser on art and ended it with Kurt Swan, so I'd happily trade you for Sal Amendola, although each artist seems to be a better fit for their specific series. Swan wasn't exactly known for his cheesecake or feral horrors. You know, I picked up those issues of Adventure Comics, it's 449 through 451, that have the Martian Manhunter backups by Mike Nasser. Very cool stuff. I loved the chapter with Supergirl. I loved the chapter with the Hawks. Unfortunately, the story arc wraps up in a Superman and Batman team up from World's Finest 245 that barely involves the Manhunter. And as Frank points out, the Swanderson art team, while good, is lacking the flash and the punch of the Nasser chapters. Then Frank asked, has anyone else pointed out the obvious, that the Animal Men were created for a story about a bow hunter hero, and were just shoehorned into the Black Canary front-up segments of a dual strip ultimately starring Green Arrow? That makes thematic sense in that context. Yeah, that is true, and I think I mentioned it in the very first chapter where the man-bear was introduced in Green Arrow's story. The animal and the hunter were fitting, but then Ollie disappears to fight Slingshot while Dinah picks up his case with the men And thinking about that now, yeah, I would have rather if they had flipped, if Green Arrow had stayed in Canada to fight the men and see that case through over a couple of issues. Meanwhile, Black Canary goes back to Star City and fights Slingshot. I think that would have been better. Anyway, that is going to be all for this episode. Next time... Actually, I'm still trying to figure out what next episode will be. It's Black Canary's turn, so it'll either be her story with Green Arrow from World's Finest 248, or I might bring in a special guest to cover Black Canary's first team-up with Batman in The Brave and the Bold 91. However, there's a lot of Star Wars stuff coming up this month, and there's a special tribute to Prince that I'm doing for FW Presents... And then by the end of May, I'm doing the JL May tie-in, so I'm not sure when or what the next episode will be. But, uh, yeah, stick around and find out. I'll be keeping you in suspense. Until then.
0: Yeah.
1: Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and ila aisin, yeah!
2: Now so come on, me so that love. Give